The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. All right, my name is Zach Gilliam. I'm one of the pastors here at Ridgewood, and it's good to all be together again this week. Um, ladies, welcome back. I heard you guys had a wonderful time. We also had a wonderful time, all the dads. We did great. Um, the, I mean, the men's choir last week was pretty good, but it sounded better this week. Um, no, but I, I do want to thank um, all the ladies that spent time organizing and planning and putting together the retreat. There's kind of a team of ladies that do that, and the pastors recognize there's a lot of time and effort put into that, and so thank you to all the ladies that did that, but it is good to all be back together. Um, I'm excited to pick back up in our series entitled The True Story of the Whole World. And so I've really enjoyed this series, and today we're going to pick up with the temple. So if if you've had a chance to look at the titles of the various sermons that we've already gone through and the ones that are coming, um, this one, in my opinion, kind of stands out differently from the rest. In a series like this, you probably expect to see things like creation, fall, promise, Messiah, spirit, but then we have this word temple uh, right here in the middle. And, and you might wonder, why would we include this in the true story of the whole world? <clears throat> My hope today is that after uh, the sermon, we'll see how the temple, which represents God dwelling with his people, uh, stretches from creation all the way to renewal. I want us to see how the temple, uh, it's a picture of former things, yet a shadow of things to come. So, so far in this study, we, we've really kind of been building onto a timeline. Everything has kind of fallen into chronological order. Um, and so, we've, we've come to the historical part of Solomon building this temple, this physical temple in Jerusalem. But, but I want us just to zoom out and kind of have the opportunity again to look backwards and then forwards in history to understand where did this come from and where is it all going? So, uh, we got a lot of information to cover and frankly, not enough time. I, I asked Trevor for 10 weeks and he gave me 30 minutes. So, um, so that there's no way to walk through all this. We're not going to be able to fully explain everything. Um, but, but my hope is that it kind of whets the appetite a little bit, that, that you kind of start seeing this thread and maybe pick up on something and say, hey, I want to go look further into that. Um, I, I will recommend to you, um, there's a guy, G.K. Beale, he's a scholar at RTS in Dallas, He's very helpful in thinking about the temple. I, I use some of his books for this and uh, just inform the way I think about it for today. So I recommend it to you as well. Now, this Sunday, it is going to be just a little bit different than what we're used to. So normally we walk kind of verse by verse through, through a passage. But in order to cover what we need, what I think we need to touch on, I'm going to teach at least the first half more like an equip class. So it's going to have a decent bit of information on slides. We're just going to kind of walk through some bullet points. Um, I tried to put all the scripture references there because we're just kind of pulling it in from a lot of different places. Um, and I would say this if you're a note taker, don't, don't try to copy it all down. Just kind of stay with me. Um, I'd be glad to make any of the slides or any of the references available to you after the service. You can just find me and I'll find someone that knows how to use email and we'll get it to you. Um, all right, so let's get started. Just, just a brief overview of where we've come from. So uh, the true story of the whole world. So our aim in this series is we want to help each other and we want to help each one of you to see the narrative of redemption throughout human history. So we want to kind of pick up our eyes when we look at the Bible and we want to see that it's not just a random collection of stories and uh, proverbs and rules, but it's a cohesive book that's telling us a story. 
So we want Ridgewood Church to be people that know how to read their Bibles, and we want to know how to read it in context, and we want to know how to read it in view of God's redemptive work and His big plans. So let's just kind of walk through our timeline together that we've gone through so far. We started with creation. Uh, Also shout out this timeline, all the graphics you saw, or Elena Rowan did. So if you're like me, I think they're pretty incredible, but give her a shout out for that. So, all right, so, so we started with creation, God creating a good world. And we focused in on God creating image bearers who were given responsibilities in this new creation. We looked at then the fall where we see the image bearers break God's command and all of creation becomes subject to a curse. The next week we highlighted the promise. Uh, Jim introduced the concept of covenant and we looked at the covenant with Abraham that through Abraham's seed all the nations would be blessed. And then Exodus where Moses leads the people out of slavery and we discussed the Passover story, the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And then we come to the law, what we call the old covenant. Um, Again, we kind of centered around God giving Moses and Israel the law at Mount Sinai. So he establishes the law, he establishes the sacrificial system, then we kind of fast forward it all the way to the kings where we looked at Solomon, David, Saul, Uh, but we spend most of the time looking at David and the covenant made with David to establish his throne forever. That someone from David's line would be king forever through whom true peace will come for all eternity. And so you might have recognized you read the same passage as we did two weeks ago, because today we pick up with David's story as we look at the building of the temple. Josh just read from 2 Samuel 7 for us. Let's look at verse 12 again in 2 Samuel 7. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here with the Davidic covenant, part of that is that David's offspring will build a house for God. And Solomon, David's son, really kind of sees himself as the fulfillment of this covenant. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon says this. Now again, this is Solomon talking. He says, now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now, this is Solomon again. Now, the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord God, the Lord, the God of Israel. So Solomon builds this temple, this physical structure. So as we kind of dive into the temple, I have three questions I want us to answer. First, just what is the temple? What are we talking about here that Solomon's building? Second, why is it in this series? Why do we have it? And finally, what does it mean for us today? So let's start with the question, what is the temple? There's three things I think that can help us understand just what this temple is. So we're going to look at the temple's purpose. It's kind of largely rooted in 2 Samuel 7. We're going to look at its structure which we can kind of pull from 1 Kings 6 through 8, Ezekiel 40, 41, 42. Um, And then we're just going to look at a brief history of the temple. So let's start with the purpose, the temple's purpose. The temple was established to be the immovable place for God to meet with his people. So it was established to be the immovable place for God to meet with his people. You see, prior to this, the nation of Israel, they spent decades wandering around through the wilderness. And what they would do is they would set up tabernacles. And tabernacles were just mobile, tent-like structures that they would put up. um, And they would place the Ark of the Covenant in there. They would perform sacrifices or prepare sacrifices. And you actually see God's presence come and dwell. 
You see uh, uh, the Holy of Holies fill up with smoke when God comes. And so when we come to this passage in 2 Samuel 7, David's conquered Jerusalem, and God tells him that his offspring is going to establish a house for him. So, so again, we're looking to establish a permanent place or an immovable place, no longer a mobile tent-like tabernacle, but a permanent place for God to meet and dwell with his people. The temple and tabernacle, uh, they're necessary structures for God to dwell with his people because of how holy he is. He's pure. He's light. Nothing unclean or dark can dwell with him. And so the temple system becomes that mechanism in which the sacrifices could be offered and the Israelites could be connected with God. But even when we look at that connection, uh, that access was largely exclusive to the priests. You know, the priests were just a set-apart people who they're, they're employed to maintain, guard, and expand the temple. They would minister to the people and offer sacrifices of animals for the sins of the people. All of this was oriented towards creating a way for a holy God to meet with a sinful people. So if we had to put a purpose on Solomon's temple, we're going to say it's to establish an immovable place for God to meet his people. Let's look at its structure. We're going to put an image on the screen here. The the structure of the temple was very specific and very intentional. It was designed to mirror the tabernacle that they had used wandering in the wilderness. So as you can see, hopefully you can kind of see it, but um, three sections made up the tabernacle. You had the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And so in the, in the tabernacle, they just had the three spots. I think in this one, there actually was like an outer court and an inner court. But you can kind of see the main crux of it. It's really the, the outer, the inner court is what it calls there where the altar is and things like that. And then the other places. So we've got the inner courtyard here. That's where the brazen altar is. All those little circles that kind of in the squares that kind of surround the outer edge. Uh, those are all basins full of water. And so this is where the sacrifices were prepared. This is where the priests are ministering to the Israelites. Next we go into is the holy place, characterized mainly by the lampstand, the table of showbread, where bread was baked fresh weekly. Only the priests were able to eat of it. Only the priests were able to enter the holy place. It's a place set apart. It's a place separate from the people. And then the holy of holies, or it's sometimes referred to as the most holy place. Here's where the Ark of the Covenant remained. It held the stone tablets from Moses. It was guarded by cherubim whose wings spanned from wall to wall. And the high priest would enter once a year into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the people. And so that's kind of the general layout of the building. But it's also important, I think, to note the decor of the building. Because you see the temple, it's largely crafted out of cedar wood. Um, and that cedar, in most places, when you read through First Kings and Ezekiel, it's carved into palm trees, lilies. Lions, oxen, cherubim, precious metals are woven into the fabric of the structure. This temple decor reflects the decor of a garden. So its structure and design are specific and intentional. We talked about the purpose, the structure. Let's now look at just kind of a brief timeline. I always think it's good just to know the history of things. Um, Kind of put it in its greater context. So we're going to put a timeline on the screen, just a few dates Uh, to kind of pay attention to. So you can see here at about 1000 BC, uh, David takes Jerusalem. And and then probably the the 970s, 980s, Solomon begins building this temple. Uh, And this is the temple we're reading about in 2 Samuel 7, 1 Kings, things like that. But that temple is going to be destroyed. King Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in 
And the people, as a result of their sin, are going to be put in exile. And so you can fast forward a few years, and we're going to see the king of Persia is eventually, he's going to allow the Israelites to return, from Jerusalem, return to Jerusalem from exile, and there they're going to begin to rebuild what we call the second temple. So they build kind of a modest version of what Solomon built. And then you can kind of go throughout history, and there's revolts, and there's different things that happen. Um, but ultimately, we kind of come to Herod. Before the time of Jesus, there it is. Um, and he's going to restore that second temple. He's going to begin kind of rebuilding that second temple. And then ultimately, that temple is going to be destroyed in A.D. 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem. All right, I know that was fast, probably boring for most. But I think it's important to have just kind of a general baseline of what's going on here with Solomon's temple. But here's the real question. Here's our next question. Why would we include this in our series? We could have picked so many other things. Why this? Why would the elders want this to be one of the big themes that we address? And here's the answer. Our God loves, he loves to dwell with his people. And this, is, this reality that he wants to and desires to perfectly dwell with his people, it's perhaps one of the most central themes in all of redemptive history. I mean, that's kind of what redemption is about. It's about there being a fracture, but we've been redeemed and restored to perfect fellowship with God. And we can see this back all the way at the beginning of our timeline. Let, let, let's kind of look back at what we've gone through already, but kind of have thinking about the temple and think about God dwelling with his people. You start with creation. God creates a, a good world, a beautiful creation, a cre creation that I think we can argue is the first temple. It, it's the structure that the future tabernacle and temple will be based on. We don't have time to elaborate on all this, but you can kind of see it in the layers of creation. You have a garden where God is walking with his people, Eden, special place, the, whole, the holy of holies. Then you kind of have the surrounding world, and then you kind of have the heavens, and the tabernacle's the same. You kind of have a special holy of holies where God meets with his people. And then the holy place and then the outer court. I don't think it's coincidence that the temple faces east towards the garden. That the holy of holies is guarded by the cherubim. The same thing Eden is guarded by. The decor of the temple, it's wood, precious metal, trees, lion, oxen, fruit. And when you think about creation in the garden, God dwelled with Adam and Eve. He dwelled with his people. I mean, the scriptures seem to indicate that, that God walked with them in the garden, that he talked with them. He was able to be known and seen. But then the fall happens. Sin enters into the world. And now there's this fracture between God and his people. God's presence among his people is now broken. I mean, isn't that kind of the reason hell will be so terrible? You know, we, we think about fire and brimstone and all this. But the terrible part of hell is that you are permanently, forever separated from the presence of God. Forever. But we aren't left there. We aren't left without a promise of a future redeemer. A redeemer that restores this relationship. However, we see throughout history that God's going to show up differently with his people than how he did in the garden. We can't be exhaustive, but, but if we could just kind of track through the timeline, we can kind of remember different things. We can remember the patriarchs, Abraham, Jacob. They have to build these little sanctuaries, and it seems like that's where God kind of comes to meet them and the blessings occur. Moses hears God from a burning bush. Moses has to be used to communicate to the people of Israel on God's behalf. God shows up as a pillar of cloud and fire in the wilderness to guide his people. 
The tabernacle is created as a mobile sanctuary or a mobile place in which at various times and places God comes and dwells with his people. We talked about the temple, the more permanent tabernacle, but it's destroyed. The place where Israel understood God to dwell was destroyed. And then we see God communicate through his prophets. But again, all of this, all of this is not how it's supposed to be. There's always just some manner of separation between God and man. Can you, can you imagine what it must have felt like to be an Israelite? Where, I mean, you can think about Solomon's temple being destroyed. Like, this is the place where God comes and meet with you. This is the place where atonement on behalf of your sins is made. And it's destroyed. It's taken away. You're sent away. You're put in exile. Can you imagine what it would have been like? When the prophets go silent, you know, it probably doesn't land on us because we don't really, you know, it might be like a page, but 400 years of silence where God's not speaking. But then he comes. Emmanuel, God with us. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh, and what? He dwelt among us. Jesus is here. God is now dwelling with man. Jesus is here to change the temple structure, to change how God and man interact with one another. Jesus is going to tell the woman at the well, there's coming a day when you're not going to worship on that mountain where the temple is. Like you're not going to go there anymore. You're going to worship in spirit and in truth. He looks at the Pharisees and he says, you can destroy this temple, but in three days I will raise it up. And they're like, what are you talking about? It took Herod 46 years. You think about the lampstand, the, temple, or the, the table of showbread in the temple in our diagram. Jesus comes and says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. Take of me. Jesus has inaugurated a better reality, a true temple. He has become the chief cornerstone of God's house, the ultimate fulfillment of David's covenant. Now, as I was prepping this, I'd written out a bunch of long things to kind of expound on this. And then I was looking at something else, and I came across Hebrews chapter 9, and it just explained everything way better than I could. So we're just going to read through bits and pieces of Hebrews chapter 9, and it's going to help us kind of see the change of the structure of the temple, the change that Jesus' life and death brings. If you would, yeah, put the slide of the, the temple back on there. All right, hear this from Hebrews 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, tabernacle. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. Not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. 
It's closed off. Only the priests can get there. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food, drink, various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, present reality, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, the greater and more perfect house, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And listen to the language here that the writer of Hebrew uses, verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies, the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. What you see there is a copy of something true and greater and real. But he's entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is 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 appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus has accomplished this at the cross. And after his resurrection, he's going to pour out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And we'll talk more about that in a few weeks. But the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians That we, we, if you know and love Jesus, you have now become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The veil that separated God from man in the temple was torn at Jesus' death. And the inauguration of a better reality has begun. What does this mean for us? There's a lot of things we can say about this. But I just want to highlight two kind of application points for us this morning. First one is access. Second one is mission. Let's start with access. We're going to continue in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 19. It says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We had our diagram up there. The places that were separate, the places that only the priests could go, you now have confidence to enter the holy places. By the new and living way that he has opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over what? Over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are the true house of God. And so I hope that we all can just get a little bit of sense of how unique this is in human history. I mean, I know we've covered the history of the world in like 10 minutes here, but we're talking about hundreds, hundreds of years where having access to God, it came through a priest in a temple. And now we are that temple of the Holy Spirit. Now we have access to the creator of the universe. 
We can enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And because of what Jesus has done for us, we can come with confidence. We can come with full assurance. We have full assurance to draw near to him. I, I imagine we all have seasons where God just doesn't feel very present to us. You know, maybe it feels like your prayers are just kind of bouncing off the ceiling. Maybe it feels like you're all alone. But in those moments when you feel alone, we've got to trust what we know to be true. We've got to trust that we can have absolute confidence in drawing near to God. We have access Every need, every sorrow, every joy in life, you can trust that God, the true God, the creator, he hears you. He hears you. He sees you. He knows you. You are known and cared for. Everyone who's weary, you can draw near. You're heavy laden, you can draw near. You're lonely, you can draw near. You have access and you can have confidence. He's there. We have access to God. Temples no more. We also have a mission. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, also be thinking about house, building houses. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as what? A house. A spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected, it has become the cornerstone. It has become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Hear this in verse 9. But you, you, if you know Jesus, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are the house. We are the chosen people, the royal priesthood. And if you know and love God, Peter is describing you. And he's telling you that one reason you've been set apart, one reason that you're here, it's to proclaim God's excellencies. Part of the mandate in the garden, our first temple, and Adam, our first priest, was to multiply. To fill the earth with image bearers that reflect the glory of God. And now we find ourselves on a mission to call image bearers to reflect the glory of God. We are to be proclaiming the excellencies of Christ here in Greer and to all the nations. I, uh, <clears throat> I was recently in a, in a member interview um, for some folks joining the church and one of the questions they asked was, what are you guys going to do? I mean, this building's getting kind of full. Um, what's, what's the plan, you know? And, um, 
you know, we kind of started talking about church planning, church revitalization, blowing out walls, you know, all this sort of stuff. And, uh, and it popped in my head when I was talking to them that right now we have probably four or five families and single folks filling out applications preparing to go to the nations, whether it be with Wycliffe Bible Translators, the IMB, Halifax, and thinking about that, and thinking about just the temple and the sermon, honestly, there's just a, a, a renewed fire lit inside of me that I'm here to remind all of us that, that we are in the business of filling this world with God's glory. Like, we are in the business of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ to the nations, my, my hope is that Ridge would be, would be a church that it continues to be so aware of God's dwelling presence in our lives and his dwelling place in our lives that we can't help but herald the good news of the gospel. And so the call for us this morning is would you consider what God would have you have for you to carry this gospel forward? What does it look like for you to carry this forward? Maybe it's staying in Greer, holding the rope, faithfully ministering to those around you. But it could be going. I think about some of our single folks. So reading the other day, the Apostle Paul speaks with such joy about the freedom of singleness. And, uh, you know, the reality is you might not always feel that here. Um, I get that. Uh, but it's, it's not lost. It's not lost what Paul says about singleness. How are you going to use it? What does it look like for you, single folks? What does it look like for you to proclaim the excellencies of Christ? I think about our retirees. What's crazy about spending the final decades of your life Sharing the good news. Is it naive of a 36-year-old to say, hey, do it. Let goods and kindred go. Your mortal life also. Buy them, may kill. Got your truth to buy still. Go share it. Go. Go to the nations. What do you have to lose? Our uh, RAs and GAs this past semester, uh, they learned about George Mueller. And uh, John Piper has a wonderful biography that you can listen to on, via podcast. But uh, George Mueller at age 71, 71, most people are hanging up their hats at that point. He started a 17-year missionary journey. He traveled over 200,000 miles sharing the gospel. No airplanes. I pray that God might raise up a few George Mueller's here at Ridgewood. Hear these words. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, because remember how this ends? I am with you always to the end of the age. He's with us. That is a different reality than what people prior to Jesus had. He is with us. God is Emmanuel. The pillar of fire and cloud that guided the Israelites through the wilderness now is in you. He's with us. 
Let's close with this. I just want to read from the book of Revelation. Chapter 21, verse 1 through 4. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things, the former things have passed away. That temple picture you saw, it's passed away. There's a greater thing coming. Verse 22, he says, I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord, God Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need for the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp, the lampstand, is done away. Its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, for there will be no night. We began in God's temple garden, where sin separated God and man. And we end in a new and better creation, where we are together again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you you are the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Your son Jesus is the greater David. Your son Jesus is the builder and the architect of your house. Your son Jesus is the chief cornerstone from which we are all built on. And Lord, I ask, I ask that you would help us here at Ridgewood to just embrace this. To embrace the call to to, to proclaim your excellencies across the world. Father, I ask that you help us to embrace it here in Greer. That we would, without fear, proclaim the good news that you have taken us from darkness and brought us into light. And Lord, I I pray for all those hurting. And I pray for all those struggling this morning. Father, would you just make it very real to them that they can draw near to you. That they have complete access. They might not know what to say, and that's okay. But Father, you are there and you care. And I pray that you would just shine your face on those folks, that they would see you. And Lord, we do long for the day when we finally do see your face. When it's no longer hidden. When it's no longer faith in unseen things, but faith is done away with, and we will behold you as you are perfectly. And so Lord, we we ask that you would come. We ask that you would come. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.